The scripture for today's sermon comes from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. The word of God speaks to us. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but to also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do mean that others should be eased, and you burdened, but that, as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of God to us. It's good to see you. Thanks, Alyssa. Well, good morning. John, since you brought it up, um, those shoes would look better with what you're wearing if you're wearing them today. It's one thing to, like, thank me for them, but you don't even have them on, you know? So... You can change maybe before the five. I don't know where he went, but somebody tell him to just to give him a test drive. He'd look, he'd look good in them. Um, I, I need to begin by just, just uh, passing on greetings and love and blessing from Frontline Edmund. Uh, we, uh, our congregation's been around for eight years this October, and y'all planted us. And so we are thankful, blessed by you. And um, yeah, I would get... I would get in big trouble if I didn't first and foremost say that everybody up in Edmond loves y'all and we, we uh, are just so blessed by you in so many ways. And one of the ways that we're blessed is that we know in this moment, we learn from y'all at Frontline Downtown, before we get into God's word, it's good to pray together with one another for one another. So let's do that now in this moment. Heavenly Father, we are so deeply grateful for you and all the gifts that you've given us. You've given us this day. You've given us your word. You've given us one another. Spirit of God, you are a gift to us. And so we pray that you would help us be present, hear everything that you have for us, 
And I pray for my, my own heart and my own words and my simple prayer is that I would be a, a blessing and a help to my friends in this room to help each and every one of us in our, our hearts see the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said together, amen. All right, hang with me, and I, I want to begin as we look at this text by inviting us to do something, which is to, in, in our minds, in our hearts, picture, hold on to the picture of, of someone who's experiencing poverty, who's begging. Now, that could be somebody you know, a friend of yours. That could be a picture of somebody hanging on your fridge that you sponsor that lives overseas that's maybe a child. That can be somebody that you encountered today even or this week. But hold on to in your heart and in your mind the picture of somebody who's experiencing the depths of poverty who is begging. Now, as we hold that picture in our hearts and our minds, that is an important picture because, first and foremost, all through Scripture, when we read it, we know that that God cares for deeply the poor, and so as followers of Jesus, we need to care for the poor as well. Proverbs 19 says in verse 17 that anybody who gives to the poor lends to the Lord, and he's going to repay them. And there's many, 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 many Scriptures all throughout the Holy Bible, that are going to hold up God's heart for those experiencing poverty and the charge of the church to care about them. So as we picture this in our hearts and we hold on to this image, we know that we're holding out a precious picture to our Heavenly Father, something that He deeply cares about. But what Paul does in this verse that Alyssa just read, in these verses, is he's going to hold up a picture of a people experiencing poverty who are begging for us to see, for the, for the church in Corinth to see, and for us 2,000, later, 2000 years later to see. And, and this is what I believe about the Scripture, what I know to be true, is that as we look at them and Paul holds them up, if we can get our hearts in tune with their hearts, that, that it'll profoundly change us. This morning, as we complete the series, Rhythms of Grace, as John mentioned, we're going to be, we'll be looking at giving. And there really is, I think, one best place to go in Scripture, so many places we could go. But we're going to look at this portion of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8, where he is going to, in detail, talk about the grace of giving and call the church in Corinth to excel in this grace. And so to begin to, to kind of study, I want to give us some historical context because to understand this particular passage, I think it, it helps to keep three churches in mind. This is a, a portion of a letter and Paul is speaking to a church about a church and modeling for their benefit a third church. So the first church that we need to keep in mind is the church in Corinth. This is the church that Paul is writing to in 2 Corinthians. And this is a church that Paul has a unique relationship with, and it's a church that, that Paul, as, as we're going to actually dig into here in the fall as a church, we're going to spend many, many, many weeks in 1 Corinthians, but at the end of 1 Corinthians, we can read in chapter 16 about Paul writing to this church about something that's referred to as the collection. And a big part of Paul's ministry was planting churches. He had planted this church in Corinth. But as Paul went about planting churches, part of his ministry also, the Apostle Paul, was to take up a collection, which was a collection from the, the churches all around at this time for the benefit of the church in Jerusalem. 
So Paul is writing to this first church, we need to keep in mind, the church in Corinth, and one of the things that he's writing about is to the benefit of the second church we need to keep in mind, the church in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem was experiencing a a severe season of poverty and persecution. And in their poverty and their persecution, as Paul was charged in his, his ministry, the apostles charged him to remember the poor, which meant a lot of things, but it, it didn't, it, it mean it foundationally that he would remember the poor in Jerusalem. And this is where this heart to take up a collection comes from. So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and it's actually a restorative letter. They had followed Paul's leadership. They had been planted by Paul, but between writing 1 Corinthians and here in 2 Corinthians, what the church had experienced was an infiltration of bad leaders that led them away from the heart of the gospel and Paul's leadership. But, but fortunately, now they're in a season of restoration and repentance, and they're turning back to the gospel. They're turning back to Paul's leadership. And so Paul is reminding them of this call to give to the church in Jerusalem once again, something they set out to do earlier. He's bringing it back before them. And then in order to capture their hearts about the beauty of what he's calling them to, Paul's going to hold up as an example, as a model, a third church, which is the church in Macedonia. The church in Macedonia is actually three churches. It's a church uh, in Philippi, The letter of Philippians is written to them. It's a church in a place called Thessalonica. They have two letters written to them in the New Testament and a church in a place called Berea. These three house churches together make up the Macedonian church, and Paul's going to hold them up, this third church, to the church in Corinth as an example about giving to the church in Jerusalem. And so that's where we're going to start with this third church, the Macedonian model. And Paul begins to to bring up giving by holding up their breathtaking, their beautiful example of giving that's happening in this little sister church in Macedonia to the church in Corinth. And he begins and he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about this undeserved, unearned gift that God has given to the church in Macedonia. And what he's saying has been given this undeserved, unearned gift, this grace that's at work, alive, in the heart of this church in Macedonia, is the gift itself is a desire to give. The grace of giving is what this passage is all about. Charis is how you say it in Greek, grace. That word occurs something like eight times as Paul is writing specifically about giving to the church in Corinth. Paul wants us to know that grace and giving are inseparable. They go hand in hand. And that that giving for the church is always happening out of an overflow of grace. The Macedonian church, their fruit of giving is because they are planted in the grace of Jesus. And grace, when understood, always gives for the benefit of others. And Paul goes on to write about this church, this Macedonian church, for in a severe test of affliction, for in a a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They're in a severe test of affliction, 
and yet they hold in their hearts an abundance of joy. And the math of this is affliction plus joy in the Corinthian church equals an extreme overflow of generosity on their part in the midst of extreme poverty. So Paul tells us just in that, that one sentence some beautiful and profound things about this church that we need to slow down and kind of explore And the first thing he's going to say when we ask, okay, we want to know this Macedonian church that's being held up as an example. Who are the Macedonian church? Well, the first thing Paul tells us is that there are people of poverty. There are people experiencing real poverty. Paul uses the word or the phrase, he says, their extreme poverty. The English translation of that phrase is bathysphere. I learned that in a commentary, and you might have the same question I have, like, what is a bathysphere? I've never used or heard that term in my life, and so I had to go to the dictionary and figure out, and by that, I mean the internet, and, and search and figure out, like, what, what is a bathysphere? And a bathysphere is this vessel created about a hundred years ago that's used, like, by guys like Jean Cousteau, right? Or if you're like a parent like me, you know the octonauts. <laughs> you, some of you are going to know what I'm talking about. It is, a, it is a vessel to explore the depths of the ocean. That's unusual. So what, what, what is going on here? What's the, what's the connection between their extreme poverty and this weird little submarine? Well, it's actually significant if we grasp what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, this church, the Macedonian church, they're like ocean floor poverty. They are the very depths of poverty. And I know some of us in this room, in a real way, and I don't want to belittle it by any means, many of us in this room have experienced or are experiencing financial hardship that is deep and real and hard. And yet, though, I just want to present the reality that, that poverty 2,000 years ago for each and every one of us, regardless of where we find ourselves, is, is probably hard to grasp what poverty was like 2,000 years ago, the, the depths to which this church is experiencing. Like, even if we are experiencing real hardship today, if we were to take a time machine and go back 2,000 years and be offered to trade places with somebody that was considered affluent in antiquity, we would say, no, 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 they don't have AC, right? They don't have air conditioning. They don't have penicillin. I will, I will stay in this present age and experience the benefits of modern life. And yet, think of poverty 2,000 years ago. And this could be a rabbit hole we go down, but this is deep. And, and, and hard, deep stomach pains of hunger, cold nights, unending sickness because the cure doesn't exist yet. We can just imagine what poverty looked like 2,000 years ago for this Macedonian church. So Paul holds up that their, their first, uh, this group of churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, they're experiencing real ancient poverty that's really hard in ways that we need to think hard about to fully grasp. And yet, he goes on to say, they're not just poor. Who are the Macedonian church? Paul says they're people that are afflicted. When Paul's describing them, He's, he's describing them in such a way that leads to us understanding that they're being crushed by life. Culture, the city around them, in a way, like has them in a bear hug that's 
ever tighter and tighter, and they're, they're being choked and squeezed in persecution for their love and devotion to Jesus. Imagine the walls closing in on them. That's their real experience. I was trying just for my own heart these last few weeks to, to try to find an example that would help me understand what life was like for these churches in Macedonia. And the best thing I could come up with was actually our, our brothers and sisters in Christ that live right now in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries in the world, and Afghanistan is also one of the most dangerous countries in the world to follow Jesus in. And so it's this collision of, if you're a follower of Christ, knowing poverty and being picked on. And here, the Macedonian church, they knew the hardship of that one-two punch, poverty and persecution. And so we come to a place where we ask ourselves, like, what could be expected of them? What does a church do when they find themselves in that hard place, that rock and a hard place between poverty and persecution? Well, Paul tells us what the Macedonian church does. Who are the Macedonian church? They're not just a people of poverty. They're not just a people experiencing persecution, but they're also, Paul tells us, that they're a giving people. Paul writes, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So from a distance, they looked like they were weak, from a distance, they looked like they had nothing to give, but the reality is we're here 2,000 years later talking about them because they actually gave riches. They gave in a profound way because they gave hearts that were joyful and generous. And what they actually gave in their generosity wasn't much. They didn't have hardly anything to give, but they gave cheerfully. They gave in joy. What they gave is the picture, historically, of a church that lives out the rhythm of grace that it is giving. Paul describes the generosity of this church in verse 3. He says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor. That word is the same word of grace. Begging us earnestly for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. Paul's saying that literally they gave contrary to their ability to give. Imagine the scenario. We can let our redeemed imaginations just... Go back in time and think through the, the moment Paul is describing here to the church in Corinth. I imagine it this way, that there's a dinner that's happening. The Apostle Paul has come to strengthen and encourage the churches in Macedonia, and so perhaps the elders and the deacons gather together in a humble home to offer a delicious but humble dinner in honor of the Apostle Paul, and so they've enjoyed each other, and they've prayed for each other, and their, their faces in the midst of their poverty and persecution are a little tired from smiling and laughing because they've just so enjoyed the presence of one another, and Paul, who planted them, being back with them once again this evening. 
And as the conversation lulls, maybe just maybe one of the elders reaches under the table as the leaders give one another knowing looks with kind of a, a glimmer of excitement in their eyes. And, and one elder reaches out from under the table and he sets a small little leather satchel on the table and he says, Paul, we've been praying, we've been planning, and we've been saving. And, and here, these churches in Macedonia, the church in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, we've pooled resources and we have an offering to give to the relief of our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And I just imagine Paul saying, oh no, that, that is so kind and so generous of you all, but, but, you know, I was planning on taking up a relief for you next. Like, you sit this one out it would cost you far too much to give. You need that. Let other churches give. And, and you all just, you, you let others give. And, and, and you use that for your, for your own benefit, for your own needs. And then wonder upon wonder, what happens next? Do you have people who are in poverty who begin to beg? And they're begging Paul to be able to give. You just imagine them saying, no, Paul, please, we beseech you, Paul, don't, don't rob us of this joy to participate in, in helping and, and taking care of our brothers and sisters of, of Jerusalem. Please, please, Paul, don't, don't bar us from the grace of giving. We long to do it. And these generous strong, wise churches, they, they theologically course-correct Paul. They teach him something about generosity. Kent Hughes, who's really helpful to my heart about much of Scripture, but particularly this passage, he writes this. He says, Such is the grace of giving. It is not dictated by ability. It has nothing to do with being well-off. It is willing it views giving as a privilege. It's joyfully enthusiastic. That's the reality of what's happening in the life and the heart of these churches in Macedonia. And so we find ourselves asking, like, what did they know? What did they love? What did they believe? How were they shaped and formed to be women and men who could live this life of generosity out in such a profound way that they're examples to us 2,000 years later? Paul helps us. In verse 5, he says, And this, not as we expected, but they themselves first gave to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. See, the Macedonians' giving, their act of grace, was a response to, to being impacted by the grace of God. This is the key, the most important thing to understand about the Macedonian church. And it's profoundly powerful, but it's simple to grasp, and this is what Paul is saying, that they knew that they had given themselves fully and wholly to Jesus. They belonged to Jesus. They knew, as Paul writes in another letter, that they were bought with a price, that, that they themselves belonged to the Lord. And so then, by extension, of course, everything that they had stewardship over, everything that they had possession over, even the, the seemingly small amount of treasure they had ultimately belonged to Jesus. And so it was their joy to give it freely for the love and the benefit in love and the benefit of others. See, when love and grace in Christ captivates us, we respond in love and grace through generosity that, that 
the reflex of love is generosity. Generosity is love's reflex. So that's the Macedonian model that Paul holds up. But Paul, in his wisdom to help the church in Corinth's heart and to help our hearts inspired by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't stop there. He continues on and he says, hey, here's the penultimate example of generosity in the Macedonian church. But I want to go on to hold up the ultimate example of generosity too, the generosity of Jesus. I say this not as a command, Paul writes, but to prove by the earnestness of others that, you all, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Every time I think about Jesus and giving, I tend to think about Kings. I probably read it in a book somewhere, I don't remember, but like historically, kings give great gifts if they want to. Nebuchadnezzar, the second 500 years before the birth of Christ, he famously built these hanging gardens of Babylon for his wife who was homesick. That's a great gift. That's a pretty epic gift if, it, if it's known as one of the ancient wonders of the world, right? Or even Elvis Presley, who one day in the 70s gave away 13 Cadillacs to random people in Memphis, Tennessee, right? So whether you're an ancient king of antiquity or if you're the king of rock and roll, if you want to, you generally have the ability to give great gifts. If you are the king of kings and you are perfect and compassionate and you are love, you give the best gifts. And the greatest gift you give is the gift of of yourself. See, Paul is saying, hey, the Macedonian church is this model, and they are a model for us only because they have been captivated by the love of Jesus, and they're being shaped and formed by the generosity of Jesus that we know to be true in the gospel. That the Son of God who lived in eternal splendor, in perfect union and communion with the Spirit and the Father, who could hold a burning star in his hand, he laid down those riches and took on flesh. He was born in a manger around animals in filth to a poor mother and father and lived in obscurity as a sojourner. He lived a life in poverty swinging a hammer. He started a ministry where he didn't have a home, yet he gave and gave and gave and gave everything he had to give. And that summit of his generosity is him laying down his own life freely. He gave his life. He gave everything he had in love to seek and serve and save the lost. The, the trajectory of the life of Jesus is, is powerful, profound, constant giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And the Macedonian church has been so struck by this grace, unearned, undeserved gift of God, that they respond in love because they know Jesus gave himself. He's the ultimate model for giving. He's the ultimate motivation for giving. He's the ultimate meaning behind our giving. And as one theologian once said, like when our hearts are struck by the generosity of Jesus, that in Christ we thunder with our own generosity in worship and response to that. So in light of the 
Macedonian model that Paul holds up for the Corinthians and in light of the ultimate model of the the generosity of Jesus that he holds up, he then has a charge for the Corinthian church. How should they respond to this truth when it relates to living out the rhythm of grace that is giving? How should we respond to this truth when it relates to living out the rhythm of grace that that is giving? And so Paul thirdly has a charge to the church that we need to see. How do we respond? The first thing that I think Paul has for us here is that we would progress in the grace of giving. That's a charge to Christians, that we would progress in the grace of giving. Look back at verse 6. Paul writes, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in speech, in faith, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and on our love for you, see that you excel in this grace also. So Paul's saying, hey, I spoke to your lead pastor, Titus, who's helping you in this, this season of restoration and repentance, and I want to remind you that you are a gifted church, and we celebrate all the gifts that you have. He's encouraging really pastorally, really gently, this Corinthian church. He's saying, you guys have so many gifts. You're in so many ways known as the great gifted early church. Many people among you have the gift of faith. What a great gift to have. You're rich in your gift of faith. This would be a great church to pray with. They believed big things. They believed God could do big things. Paul's saying, you have many people among you that have the gift of speech, that they can articulate with with, uh, heart-filled beauty truths about God. That people in this church have the gift of knowledge, Paul's going to say, which is awesome. This is an incredible group that you want to be in discipleship group with. You want to study scripture with them because they're going to be able to explain and have wisdom about the truth of the gospel. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14 that this church was gifted in spiritual gifts by the grace of God. They had so many gifts, but Paul is saying, hey, in the midst of all these gifts that you have, you still have places that you're called to grow. You still have room to grow, and you need to grow. You need to progress in the grace of giving. This was true for the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. It's true for many churches in the United States, particularly today. I read an article these last few weeks in Christianity Today written by an author named John Lee. Uh, the, the title of the article is, Who are the most generous, not who you'd expect? And this is a portion of that article. Lee writes, According to nonprofit source, only 5% of church members give regularly. Households that make more than 75000 are the least charitable. Nationwide, Christians today give 2.5% of their income. For comparison, during the Great Depression, that number was 3.3%. And he goes on to, to say some other things. He goes on in that article to actually express the reality that generationally in America we're becoming less generous, that baby boomers tend to be the most generous generation, that behind them, Gen X is a little less generous than baby boomers. And then my generation, millennials, believe it or not, despite my gray, I'm, I'm known as a geriatric millennial. I wear that, wear that badge with honor. But, but we millennials, that we are the least generous generation. 
that although when surveyed, we express generosity of, as one of our highest values, let on, on average millennials give less than $50 a year to any cause. Now, why that is disturbing isn't first and foremost because we should be worried about churches making budgets, per se. Why that's primarily disturbing is because it has everything to do with Christian growth and maturity. The, if the trajectory of the American church is to give less and less and less from generation to generation, that that is real evidence that the Christian church in America is becoming less and less spiritually mature. And so some of us, if we can just take those big epic statistics and then just draw a line around ourselves personally, we can hear call of Paul's call to give and remember Jesus' call to say where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. And maybe our threshold of ma- maturity, our threshold of growth that we're being led into, we can sense that perhaps we're in a, a space in our spiritual growth that's stagnant and the door that's being opened to us and the Spirit is inviting us to step through for our good and the glory of God is to lean into progressing in the grace that it is giving. And we can get lost in the fog of our own excuses sometimes as to why we don't do that. I know I've been there. When this gets paid off, I'll, I'll give or I'll give more. Or when, when I get that raise, I'll give or I'll give more. Or when the kids get out of the house, I'll be able to give or give more. And we can get lost in the fog of our excuses. And I would just invite us to look at the light that shines bright from this Macedonian church, reflecting the light of the generosity of Jesus, and let that light burn away the fog of those excuses. And, and ask the Spirit to give us a heart like theirs where we are eager and joyful and cheerful to even beg like they did to be able to participate in the rhythm of grace that's giving. Paul goes on to, to charge and say that we would be purposeful and passionate in the grace of giving. Verse 10, he says, In this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago uh, started not only to do this work but also desire to do it. So remember, Paul is calling this church to kind of return to a love that they lost. Hey, you guys at at once in your history had been desirous to give to the church in Jerusalem. That word in Greek is thelios. It's It's a collision. It's a crossroads of delight and determination, which is beautiful, I think. So Paul's saying, hey, church in Corinth, you had this delight and determination to give generously to the church in Jerusalem, I'm calling you back to that, which means I'm calling you back to purposefully planning like you once did to give, that you had planned to give, you had prayed, you had organized, you had budgeted, you had saved, you had sacrificed all to give to those in need. You cared about it, so you walked it out in an intentional way being purposeful, your passions led to intentionality. And that's the case with all of the, the rhythms of grace. We're really not going to like stumble into fasting. We're not going to accidentally involve ourselves in gospel community. We're not going to haphazardly give ourselves to in-depth Bible reading, and we're not going to accidentally grow and progress or value the spiritual discipline that is generosity. So may our our 
desire, our delight and determination lead to us prayerfully and, and purposefully asking ourselves questions before God and ask, hey, Heavenly Father, Spirit of God, would you give me clarity on what and how I'm called to give to the poor in this season of my life? God, would you give me clarity on, on what I'm called to give to the local church for the gospel to be proclaimed this season of my life? Spirit of God, would you give me clarity and vision and direction on how I can be generous to those in my life, my coworkers, my neighbors, my friends? Paul gives the charge to be proportionate in the rhythm of grace that is giving. Look at verse 11. So now finish doing it well. Paul gives a command. Hey, complete this so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And listen to verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. Paul's giving us some good news here regardless of where we find ourselves financially. He's saying, look, it's all about the heart. God cares about the heart. And so if you find yourself here this morning and you're discouraged about the rhythm of grace that's giving because you feel like you don't have a lot to give, remember the Macedonian model. The, ultimate, the penultimate next to Jesus example of giving is a people who experienced real poverty. And so not feeling like you don't have much doesn't, doesn't dis- disqualify you from actually living out the grace that is giving. But it's about your heart, not what you give. It's about your posture before the Lord, not the number. Both rich and people experiencing poverty can give great gifts to God. So maybe you're a college student, or you're a single parent, or you are working really hard at a job that doesn't pay much, or you're between jobs, or you just find yourself, for whatever reason, in a season where you feel like you can't give much. And Paul's saying, hey, it doesn't matter the amount. It's the heart. Be encouraged. You can give profoundly beautiful things before the Lord. And some of us might have stewardship over what seems like a lot. And Paul's saying, hey, that's real responsibility. Sit in that. Don't take that lightly and be a good steward of what God has given you. Everyone gets to be generous regardless of whether you have stewardship over a lot or a little. And then lastly, Paul says in a charge that we would be partners in the grace of giving. Verse 13, for I I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, church in Corinth, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. If I'm honest, to me, this is kind of confusing, right? Because it seems like Paul, upon first reading, is giving some kind of this like church partnership quid pro quo. <laughs> it's like, hey, church in Corinth, you give to the poor church in Jerusalem, and then someday, as a matter, you know, you have an abundance right now, out of a matter of fairness, you give to them, and someday, in fairness, they'll give back to you. That's not what Paul's saying, just, just based on reason, because there's no way ever the church in Jerusalem would ever have the means to, to give back what they've received because of the poverty and the persecution they experienced. He's, Paul's saying something more beautiful about church partnership that just transcends mere financial support. He's saying this, that, that every church is gifted to be able to support one another and partner in kingdom advancement. 
And the church in Corinth, by God's grace, was uniquely positioned in their abundance to give financially to support other churches, namely the church in Jerusalem. But the church in Jerusalem wasn't just receiving, they were giving also. If you go back in time, Paul was sent from the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem, go to Acts 6, is the very birth of the church. It's Pentecost. It's where the beauty of the Spirit came down. The very birth of the gospel was spread. And so they give generously too. Not just treasure, but theology, doctrine. Leaders are sent from Jerusalem. Paul is saying that churches are all gifted and all support each other in different ways. Real plainly, that's the beauty of why everything given to Frontline Church, 10% of that goes out to support and strengthen other churches. So the final line Paul makes is he's, he's, the, the final point he makes, the final line, he's quoting Exodus, and he says, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. And so he's holding up this moment in history where God's people were in the wilderness, and yet God was so faithful, every morning they woke up to bread from heaven, and they had what they needed. And, and Paul's saying, hey, in this moment in the history of God's people, that heavenly provision is coming about through the generosity of churches, the people of God, as they've been struck by the generosity of Jesus, being generous to one another for his glory. And may we be a church that continues in that tradition. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we come first, and I... I I'm so grateful for all the ways in real, profound, and powerful ways that this congregation is holistically, fully generous. The churches that have been planted from Frontline downtown, the faithful ways that these, these brothers and sisters in Christ give of their time and their, their talent, their treasure, the generosity that has come from this congregation for years and years, is beautiful and, and reflects your generosity in so many profound and powerful ways. And so I just invite all of us to, to celebrate your work in and through this church, and we want to give you glory. And thank you for the ways in which you've historically used this congregation and the ways that you are going to continue for years and years to use this people as a giving people for the glory of God. And with that gratitude in our hearts, we, we trust you and we pray that you would continue to grow us as generous people in Christ Jesus, that we would progress, that we would plan, that we would take joy in giving as partners in the gospel. We pray this for your glory. And all God's people said, amen.